Sorry I missed the retreat. I, uh, I had a speaking engagement, just got in last night, and uh, it just turns out that this week was my, my fifth child's spring break. And when I made this speaking date, maybe a couple of years ago or so, I didn't realize it, of course. And uh, so she got in on Friday last week. I was leaving Saturday morning to go speak. I thought I'd come join you on Friday night, but then earlier in the week last week, she said, oh, good move, Dad. I'm coming home from spring break. I'll be there on Friday, and I'm leaving on Thursday morning. And you're going to be gone the whole time. Good move. So uh, uh, that disqualified me for amen on Friday night. Uh, Sorry. Uh, I know others of you were hindered, too, but... For those of you who went, obviously it was a great time and glad for that retreat. Guys, uh, last time we did not finish our lesson. Let's go back to that. And I don't know if we have it on PowerPoint or not. If we don't, I'll just do it verbally. But, uh, you know, we were looking at the rich young ruler, this amazing encounter back in chapter 10. And we saw that no one is great enough to earn eternal life. Not even someone as sharp and, and uh, upright as this wealthy, young leader. And uh, we, we concluded that part of the text in verse 31. But then we have two more sections that are vital for our understanding and all ties together. I want us to look at it. Let's pick up with verse 32. Uh, after Jesus says that, you know, with man, this is impossible, verse 27, that is to be saved, uh, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter, of course, is very concerned about themselves. He says, well, what about us? You know, basically, he says, we, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus assures him that uh, when you when you leave things in this life, they come back to you a hundredfold. And they do uh, when you follow Christ. I don't know how to explain it, uh, but they, they do. You just feel hundredfold blessed in this life. And then in the next life. Uh, it's even greater, of course. And he says, as he closes there in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's a very important phrase. It's going to be the transitional phrase that leads us into two key concepts about how to be first. And he says here, the last will be first. The first will be last. So what he's <laughs> saying, obviously, is that he means it in two different ways. The first in this world will be the last in the world to come. And the last in this world will be the first in the world to come. The first in the eyes of the world are actually the last from a divine perspective. And the last in the eyes of this world are, are the first in the eyes of God. And uh, one who comes to Christ believes that and understands it and actually experiences it. Uh, and then we're going to see in two ways... The last will be first. Now, let's look at these two ways. First of all, in verses 32 through 34, if you're still if you still have that sheet and you're filling in the blanks, this will be Roman numeral two on on page two of your notes. I think it's page two of your notes, maybe three. But Roman numeral two is no one will be great, but through suffering. No one will be great, but through suffering. Now, that's the first way in which the last will be first. The, the ones who suffer are actually the first, not the last. They appear in the eyes of the world to be the dregs. They're the ones that are beat up and poor and suffering. 
But look what Jesus says in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Okay, there's the first instance of the last being first. The one who looks like he's cursed by the world and by God. The one who looks like he's cursed is actually the one who will rise on the third day and be blessed. And so we learn that no one will be great but through suffering. And in verse 32, A, on your notes, Jesus leads the way. He goes first. He doesn't ask you to be the last without him having been the last. He doesn't ask you to suffer without him having suffered. And when you're in your worst moment, remember, he went before you. He suffered everything that you've suffered, yet without sin, says the writer of Hebrews. So you have a companion in your suffering. You have a champion. You have one who's gone before you. He knows how to guide you because he's been there, been there, done that. And he sympathizes with you in your weakness, we're told, because he's experienced weakness. So remember, he leads the way. Secondly, B, in verses 33 through 34a, Jesus suffered and died. He died from his sufferings, and it was an ignominious death, mocking, spittle, flogging. And, of course, this is the third prediction of his crucifixion and resurrection in Mark. And uh, Jesus very clearly knows what's going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. And, and that's very important before we come to the triumphal entry that we're looking at today, uh, this morning. Jesus knew what it was up in front of him. And gentlemen, he's been very clear with us. He's told us what's in front of us. If you really follow Christ, you should expect to suffer because you are a Christian. I mean, even in a society where the majority of people profess to be evangelical Christians, 55% profess to be believers in biblical Christianity. And yet, you'll still find yourself at times marginalized. You'll still find yourself sometimes scorned because you believe Christ and the truths of the Scriptures. So, he suffered. You're going to suffer. Whatever happened to him is going to happen to you because you're united to him in the same world order that he lived in. So, he goes before us. He suffered and he died. And then, of course, 34b, Jesus rose from the dead. So, we were baptized into his death. We're baptized into his resurrection. If we experience suffering, we're going to experience triumph, just as he did. So Jesus Christ is not only the model, Jesus Christ is in us. And we're in him. And we're going to face the same world that he faced and we want to face it the same way. So realize that it was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned it shame. So it was scorning him, he scorned it. Because he knew where it was leading. We get to the crown through the cross. And we've seen how dangerous it is for us to be professing or believing a Christianity without a cross in it. This sort of triumphalistic Christianity that has no suffering in it. It's not Jesus Christianity. And we see it here clearly. No one will be great except through suffering. So we humble ourselves now under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt us in due time. We're dying now. Our outer nature is wasting away. But our inner nature is being renewed day after day, and one day our outer nature will be renewed as well. 
So it's a matter of timing. That's what maturity is. To let the process take place to bring you to the end. It's delayed gratification. That's what maturity is. So we willingly and joyfully suffer now. And that means that our bank accounts are not as large as they would be were we not Christians. Our time could be spent more on self-indulgence if we were not Christians. Uh, We could protect ourselves or wreak vengeance for certain abuse upon us if we were not Christians. But we humble ourselves now. That's what it means to follow Christ. He was in the lead, and you notice in this text, they were all amazed at him. Why? He's just casting this enormous shadow as he makes his way to Jerusalem. Just amazed at him. This man of great influence and power just going straight ahead. Just get in his shadow. Just get in his wake and just go right behind him in amazement. And he will go before you. He already has. Now, in verses 35 through 45, we're going to see another way in which the first will be last and the last will be first. And it is through serving. We're going to see in 35 through 45. This is Roman numeral three. No one will be great, but through serving. So in the first instance, you should expect suffering. In the second instance, expect to be a servant. And that is your way to greatness. Your way to greatness is through suffering. Your way to greatness is through serving. Your way to be number one is to be number last. This is what Jesus is saying. You know what? Men like us will struggle for a lifetime with this. Because there's something in the way in which we were created to be first. We're, we're kings. We're princes. We're made for this. And it's very difficult for us to understand the implications of the fall in the Garden of Eden. That now everything is delayed in terms of our enthronement. It's going to come at the end. So you have to chill out. And while you're chilling out, take the low seat at the feast. Now let's look at this text. Verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) You know how your kids do that? Can I ask you something? Will you say yes? By the way, the answer to that is no. Uh, Here's the answer. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) So what do you want? And they say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Okay, you see, they see Jesus cutting this wick, heading down up the trail to Jerusalem. He's going to be enthroned. He's the Messiah. They're going to take over. He's the new Maccabee. You know, he's going to come and cleanse the temple and take Jerusalem. Jesus, can I be your Secretary of State? And can he be the Secretary of Defense? Uh, of course, we've been through this before with James and John. It seems to be a recurring problem. Uh, Let's see what we have here. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Now, he's not talking about water, folks. We can, they answered. You see this? Just complete blindness to what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah, we can, we can be baptized with this. Yeah, we, we can stand to be enthroned. Yeah, we can take it. Being a cabinet member in your official government, we can handle that. And uh, he's saying, you, you don't know what, I'm, what you're saying. He says, you will drink the cup I drink, verse 39, and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. They don't know what that means either. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, 
You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's back up here. In verses 35 through 40, this is A on your outline. When we seek greatness, we do not know what we are doing. He says, you don't know what you're asking. When we seek greatness, we don't know what we're doing. Because greatness comes through dying, through suffering, through being the household butler. So we ask to be great. We have, when, when we're seeking greatness for yourself, for ourselves, we, we, don't even, we don't even have an idea what greatness is and what it's going to do to us if we really became great in the eyes of Jesus. So, first of all, it just begins with rank, ignorance. Secondly, B, when we seek greatness, we offend our brothers. Verse 41, you see how when we seek greatness, we offend our brothers. Of course they were indignant. When you seek greatness, you are seeking to be greater than somebody else. So if that person really knows what you're trying to do, if they really know what your intention is, what do you expect their reaction to be? How do you expect to have good relations with your wife or with your children when you want to be the master of the household? The only way you can be master is everybody else is a slave. How's it going to be in your business if the only salary you really care about is your own? Or salary plus what you get from your equity. If that's really what's in your heart, in your mind, and driving your decision making, if everybody knew that, what would their feeling towards you be? Of course it would be indignant. The selfishness, the arrogance of thinking only about yourself and your business. You say, well, I own my business. No, you don't. Not if you're a follower of Christ, you don't. He owns it. Remember, let's get this straight. You don't own your business. If you own 100% of the, of the stock of your business in worldly terms, that means you have 100% of the responsibility to manage it for Jesus Christ who owns it. That's what that means. That's the mentality that then enables you to build relationships because relationships are going to come through serving other people. And if your intent really is to serve them, they'll find out. They'll find out because everybody on your staff, all your custodians, will have a living wage. They won't just be paid what you can get by with. They won't even be just paid what the market will bear. They'll be paid a living wage. They'll be paid because you're thinking about them. It's a strategy in your mind all the time. How am I going to lift my people up? I'm their servant. That, that's just a huge paradigm shift when you think about it in your workplace or in your home. It, it changes everything. Eventually, when people really get to know you, they know how you're motivated. Of course, all of us are mixed. That's, that's the problem in this life. None of us are perfect. And, you know, let's start with the preachers, you know. Those of us who, who should be the most online with this. We're not. We have mixed motives all the time. Every time I preach a sermon, there's a mixed motive. I, I want you to think it was a good sermon. That's not being a servant, in case you hadn't thought about it. <laughs> So we all have mixed motives. 
And the life of discipleship is continuing to be confronted by something like this and to realize that when James and John want to be great, you are, you are offending everybody else, rightly so, if they really knew your motives. So the challenge to follow Christ is, is not just to die when your big moment comes, you know, Braveheart. Freedom! You know, great, you did it once in your life and then you died. No, it's, it's up till that point. You know, it's, it's serving other people, dying to yourself and your own, your own self-centeredness. It's a moment-by-moment struggle of freedom. That's the real brave heart. So we can see how, how it affects other people. Look in verse 42 and, and see here is this. When we seek greatness, we imitate unbelievers. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, you know the CEOs in our, in our world, uh, they lord it over people. And their high officials, their politicians, they exercise authority over them. That's what it means to be a big, big cheese, is exercise authority over people. The CEOs do it. The politicians do it. You know how they do it. They get power, and then they start using their power to get more power. And that power is the name of the game. Money's just currency for power, to gain power. So he is saying, you're not to be imitating them. And so if CEO salaries are, are soaring and worker salaries are just inching ahead less than uh, the CPI, and that's the way it is and has been for 15 years or more, 20 years, the Christian says, hey, hang on just a minute. I, I don't have to do business that way. I don't have to have a lot of zeros after my name on my salary in order for people to think I'm, I'm good. I'm, go, I'm going to reverse this. The Christian does that, the follower of Christ, because Jesus said so, and that's exactly what he did. And so he says, don't do it like Gentiles do it. And don't just make an excuse that everybody else is doing it. And don't make an excuse that... Well, that's what the board of directors wanted to do. No excuses. Let's reverse it. So he's saying here, when we seek greatness, we are imitating somebody, but it isn't Jesus. Then in verses 43 and 44, this is D as in dog. True greatness is found in lowly service. Whoever wants to become great must be your servant. Why is it that in English government... Those who are in the cabinet are called ministers. The word minister means servant. It's a word for deacon, diakonos, minister or deacon. So uh, in, in the West, we had the right idea. At least we got the right titles. Unfortunately, people who have the titles don't always think about the meaning of the title. And uh, we talk about those who, of you who are in uh, government or uh, politics, it's public service. And uh, doesn't it seem quite contrary then when people are ripping you off in public service? But that's what the Gentiles do. They play the game of public service and then rip you off. And Christians rip you off when they get positions of influence uh, like husband and then they rip you off. And they take advantage of their power and influence. Or they get the office of manager and they rip you off by taking advantage of you. Same thing. 
So it's not just politicians. It's human beings. And Jesus is saying, look, here's the way we do it. We find it in lowly service. Now you say, if this is the way it is, how would ever anyone ever be a CEO? Well, that's a really good question. But the answer is, if in God's providence he makes you CEO and you have the heart of a servant, praise the God of all providence and continue to perform the way you got there by his providence. Not because you were pay, pay, playing all the political games and all the power games that everybody else plays. If he's pleased to have you in a position of authority and you've been a servant, great. Accept it and carry it out in that same way. Uh, I can brag on somebody who's not here uh, and doesn't come to Amen Bible study. You all know Gary Shorb, uh, a Methodist, CEO, wonderful CEO. If you ever hear his testimony, you'll find that it was just through the providence of God and the goodness of his wife <laughs> that he ends up being in the position that he's in. It's a long story. But it's just a story of just depending upon the providence of God to take your life and put you where he wants you. And if you'll serve, here's what you'll find when a, to the measure that a society or a business culture or professional culture has any health at all, to the measure that you serve other people and advance their cause, to that same measure they want you to be in a position of authority and leadership when they're healthy. And that's the reason that the shalom of our city and the shalom of our nation has captured in it our own shalom. Because our peace will be advanced by the peace of the nation and the peace of the nation will be advanced by their adherence to the righteousness of God. And when the nation is at peace, those who serve like this, God in his providence normally will put them in positions where they can serve other people by having positions of authority and influence. Now, that's often how it happens. But you just have to trust the Lord in his providence to do that. Let him lift you up. Don't you go lifting yourself up by stepping on top of each other's heads by getting to the top. That's the way the Gentiles do it. Just don't do it that way. Just sign off. I'd rather be a garbage collector in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked as king. So that's what Jesus is saying. Let's, let's just do it Jesus' way and we'll take Jesus' results. And you find it in verse 45 then. E is true greatness is found in imitating Jesus. That's where your greatness is going to be found. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He uses Son of Man language. Who's Son of Man? Daniel 7. High and exalted. Lifted up. Glorious. Majestic. Powerful. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And how did He do so? He gave His life as a ransom to spring us free from the prison of our own sin. That's how He did it. That's how He was enthroned. So, if you take the greatest being in the entire universe and you want to know how he got enthroned, here's how he did it. He laid his life down for people and he trusted in the resurrection to bring him back. So if you can't go as far as laying your life down for the key commitments in your life because you trust in the resurrection, you'll never be able to find greatness. So you only find greatness if you're trusting in the resurrection, that you're going to come back in your greatness. Then you can go ahead and lose what you've got here. But you're not going to lose what you've got here if you don't think you're going to get it back later. That's the reason that belief in the bodily resurrection is absolutely essential to the walk of Christ in finding true greatness. You have to believe in the resurrection. Otherwise, you're going to be guarding and protecting yourself and advancing only your own cause and your own estate. So 
Put your faith in Jesus Christ that when He goes down and dies and He rises up through the resurrection, that's exactly what's going to happen to you. It doesn't matter how low you go. You'll just spring all the higher uh, when Jesus comes back to bring to you the same thing He experienced in the resurrection. Now, that's what it means to know and believe that it is not through your youth and your wealth and your leadership and your, and your reputation in the eyes of the world that you're going to have your greatness, like the rich young ruler. It is not that way. And it is impossible for people to be saved on their own achievements. So give it up. Chill out. Rather, he says, at that, at that turning verse there, the first will be last and the last first. That means through suffering and through serving. There you go. And to the measure that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the measure we will take on suffering and servanthood and find, find our greatness there. Some of it now, most of it delayed. Okay, that brings us into our next text, which is going to show us Jesus marching on his way to Jerusalem. And in the midst of this, we're going to see what his real business is. You want to know what's on Jesus' mind? What this whole thing is about? Why he's making his way to Jerusalem? The significance of Jerusalem in the first place? What he intends to accomplish through all this great work and all this suffering and all this servanthood and all this blood and guts and spittle running down the front of his face? What is this all about? What, what is he up to? Well, we, we're going to get it in the text. And let's start with uh, the story of Bartimaeus. It's really the story of Jesus in the kingdom, but it's, a, it's a, worked through uh, healing Bartimaeus on verses 46 through 52. Let's take a look at it. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus. That's what Bartimaeus, Bar means son, and then you have Timaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. All right. Jesus' real business is to heal us of our brokenness. That's Roman number one. Jesus' real business is to heal us of our brokenness. You want to know why he's going to Jerusalem? You want to know why he's going to die on the cross? You want to know why he's going through all this to be raised on the third day and ascended into heaven so he can go to the right hand of the Father and heal you? Take care of business. He's taking care of us. This is good news. Now notice in verses 46 through 48, in our brokenness, we often ignore the cries of other broken people. This is back to what we were just saying. Jesus just given this big talk. Just gave a life sermon. Oh, man, if I could preach a sermon like that. The first will be last and the last will be first. And we've got to suffer and we've got to serve other people, not lord over them. And immediately they get to Jericho and here's a blind man pleading for mercy and they rebuke the blind man. Boy, they really got that sermon. I'm telling you what, if I preach because I thought you were going to do what the Bible said without preaching that morning, I'd just quit because I don't do it either. The sermon does, the teaching of the Bible does arrest us, enlighten us, 
get us moving in the right track. But we're just slogging through the mud. I mean, if we're expecting perfect obedience out of ourselves or out of anybody else, and we're going to measure the effectiveness of your teaching or mine based on that, well, you can just quit right now. Because we're slogging along. These guys were slogging. They just got the best sermon in the world about how to serve people who are broken. The first broken person they find. Shut up. Oh, that just goes back to our brokenness. We don't realize what Jesus is saying to us. You know, we can just talk about that servanthood paradigm. First thing out of here, you know, you're going to find somebody to criticize because they're not serving you. I mean, it just it's amazing how needy, needy we are. That's an argument for continuing to come back for more sermons and more Bible studies. Because we're looking in your, into, your, into the Word of God every morning, looking into the Word of God every night, asking God to continue to guide you because you screw up every day. And you just need to be reminded over and over again. Here it is. In our brokenness, we often ignore the cries of other broken people. This is just, I mean, if it weren't so sad, if this man weren't blind and we had no danger of laughing at the, uh, at the unfortunate things of other people... It would be a really funny story. <laughs> I think it is funny. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. All right. Look at verses 49 through 51. Here's what we see. Jesus hears us and tends to our brokenness. He cuts right through the crud. Even when you are not compassionate to someone at work today, Jesus is. Even when your father never told you he loved you, the Father in heaven does. Even when your older brother beat up on you, and some of you were the ones who did the beating up, some of you were the beaties and some of you beat hers. Even when you were abused, the father was coming down to you and he loves you. He's going to heal your brokenness. So God in his gracious love is cutting through all the human wickedness and insensitivity toward others. It's just amazing. And some of you deal with abused people all the time. Some of you have a ministry of that. And you know how God's love just cuts through history, years of abuse and negligence and loves them. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And I don't, it doesn't matter how much you have been abused. It doesn't matter how much you've been ignored. I'm telling you what, you can sit here right in your chair today and the Father's love just breaks down in your heart. Regardless of everything you learn by intuition from your dysfunctional family background or your circumstances here in Memphis, He just cuts right through and gets to your heart. It's amazing how Jesus does that. And that's what he's doing here. He just says, call him. Well, people know enough to know what that means. They were telling the guy to shut up. But when the master says, call him, okay, I'll call him. And that's kind of what happens to us. We may be abusing other people and we hear Jesus say, oh, you're supposed to, you're supposed to be kind to people who work for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's what happens here. He just redirects his calling. And then look at the words that they say to him. When they, when they go to him, these are, of course, very, very exciting words in verse, uh, uh, where are we? Uh, yeah, verse 49, thank you. So look what they say. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. I just love that verse. One of these days, I'm just going to spend a month of sermons. Just cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. And gentlemen, I don't care what you've been through. I can say to you, cheer up. Get on your feet. He's calling you. He's noticed you. He wants you. He's going to deal with you. And that's really the message that we have for the world today. Cheer up, world. Get up on your feet. Get ready to move. The Lord of glory is calling you. And that's the message these blockheads were able to take to this guy. And then, of course, you see what he does. 
throwing his cloak aside. His cloak was on the ground because that was what he collected his alms with. Put, put your cloak on the ground, beg for people to, to give to the blind, and then you gather up your cloak and take your money home, whatever's in there. Well, he just, forget that. Don't need to collect alms anymore because I'm cheered up. I'm on my feet. I'm going to follow him. Then notice what he does. He jumps to his feet and he goes to Jesus. Looks like he has no help. This guy can't see. <laughs> he just says, to heck with stones and anything else that's going to be in my way. He just, you just go straight to Jesus Christ. And gentlemen, I know many of you have had this experience too. You know, you're sitting there in your own miserable life and you realize that the Lord really does care about you and that he will receive you and he's actually calling you. And some of you can remember this very distinctly. I can. Of the Lord just calling you personally and letting you know, you know, this is your moment to come to me. And you just leave. You just, everything falls off. And there's one thing you want. And that is he. That's exactly what's happening here with this man. Jesus, uh, see, heals us of our brokenness. And he just simply says to him, just keep right on going. Go. Your faith has healed you. And that's after he asks him what he wants. What do you want for me to do for you? And the blind man says, real simple, I just want to see. He says, go. Your faith has healed you. Now, this is a picture of what happens to us. You know, we're blind and we can't see. We all have all kinds of problems. Some of us may be struggling from all kinds of physical limitations or diseases or financial problems. And eventually he says, look, your faith has healed you. I'm taking care of all this stuff. You know, one day you're going to be perfectly healthy. You're going to be bouncing around like you used to in your youth. Uh, You're going to be stinking wealthy. I'm taking care of you, okay? Chill out. And you can go now. Your faith has healed you. You're taken care of. And that's exactly what happens here. Jesus heals us of our brokenness. And in verse 52, uh, we see, D, Jesus receives us among his followers. He followed Jesus along the road. So where does the guy go? Right behind. (laughs) Just right right in behind Jesus. It's interesting. He didn't say, go off now into the world. Go off and do what you were doing. Go off. Go back. Get your cloak. Sit down again. And now fake it and just ask people to give alms to the, you know, to the blind. He doesn't tell them to go back and do that. It, go, go back and get on welfare. Now he says, go back, get behind me now. And the man gets right in line. He's now going to march to Jerusalem with Jesus. Now, this story is amazing on its own right. But it's even more amazing when you look at it historically. And by that, I mean, you look at Jesus, who is the son of David. In fact, when he, when he comes in to the city of Jerusalem, they're going to proclaim him as the, the son of David. They say, if you look ahead in verse, uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So they're recognizing Jesus as son of David. And of course, his genealogy is available for us in Luke and in Matthew. We know that he is a son of David. And so let's look historically at the meaning of coming into Jerusalem with respect to the blind. This is a very significant um, message that's being sent to us by symbol. Uh, so look back, if you will, at Second Samuel chapter 5, and this would be, gentlemen, page 454. Page 454, Second Samuel 5. The bottom of page 454, you have a picture of what Jerusalem looked like in the day of David. 
It was the city of the Jebusites. And they were, you see the Kidron Valley? Well, the Mount of Olives is just to the right of the Kidron Valley. So, and Jericho would be to the right of that. So, in other words, you're coming from Jericho uphill toward Jerusalem. And you get to the Mount of Olives, and you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, and then you can look down upon the temple. And the temple would have been right where these Jebusites were back in 1000 B.C. So, you see that picture? That's 1000 B.C. You know, obviously, they didn't have photographs then. (laughs) So, So, obviously, this is a picture... This done from historical evidence, archaeological evidence, where we know that there was an ancient community there, the Jebusites. Now, in David's time, this is King David. Uh, of course, the the tribes, you know, had already taken the land and they divided it up, and this was the land of Judah. Uh, and the land of Benjamin was just south of there, but they hadn't taken this hill. The Jebusites still lived there because the Israelites were unable. To get them out. Well, why? Well, you can look at the picture there and get an idea. This hill was a fortress. I mean, you have the Kidron Valley on the east. You have the Hinnom Valley on the west. It's, it's, it's very difficult to get into that fortress. So you have these stone, natural stone walls uh, on the hill, and then they would build walls on top of that. So if you tried to scale... The, the fortress, you're, you know, you're going to be toast. So the Jebusites had laid claim to it. Now, Je- David is coming. This is David now, 1000 B.C. He's going to conquer what was Jerusalem or the land of the Jebusites. Now, let's look at how he conquers it. Verse 6, this is Second Samuel 5, 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Look at this. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. So it became not the city of the Jebusites. It became the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. Now, what does all that mean? You want to know why in the Middle East terrorists will shoot at you and then they'll go hide behind the women and the children? Because that's the way they always did it. And in the city of the Jebusites, you know what they were hiding behind? the lame and the blind. And before you ever got to fight the soldiers of of the Jebusites, you would fight lame and blind people. You'd be forced to kill them first before you made your way into the city. And they became David's enemies. It's like the women and the children became David's enemies. In this case, it was even weaker, the lame and the blind became his enemies. And that's the reason they said, no lame and blind can enter the palace of David. Because they were the enemies who tried to keep him out of Jerusalem. How did David get into Jerusalem? He killed the lame and the blind to take over Zion. Jesus is now coming to Jerusalem. Before he ever gets there, the city of Jericho, he confronts a blind man. And his disciples tell the blind man to shut up. He's on his way to Jerusalem. 
How does Jesus conquer the lame and the blind? He heals them. They become his followers. And they take a place in the palace. A place in the kingdom. Jesus, the son of David, is doing the same thing. Coming to that holy hill. But instead of killing them, he's healing them. He had just told them, the first will be last. The last will be first. And he illustrates it. By doing the exact opposite of what David did when he came to conquer the city. And gentlemen, this is what he's saying to us. You want to conquer? You want, you want to be the one through whom God is going to advance His kingdom? Then just lay down your life and care for the blind and the lame. And that's the reason we just sang a hymn. Behold ye blind, your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. Because the new David has come, and he doesn't wipe out the weak. He cares for them and takes them into his train. This is just an amazing story that is the prelude to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the triumph of a mighty warrior who's going to ride on a donkey and take care of the people on welfare. That's the king who's coming to Jerusalem. So that's our introduction. Now back, if you will, to Mark chapter 11. Let's look now at this text and... We'll probably need to continue this next week as well. But what we want to see in uh, chapter 11, 1 through 25, this is Roman number 2. Jesus' real business is to establish God's kingdom for all the nations. So Jesus' real business is to heal us of our brokenness. And Jesus' real business now is to establish God's kingdom for all the nations through healing us of our brokenness. He's a healer, not a killer, not a murderer. This is the reason, of course, you find in the West that was influenced strongly by Augustine and the Christian tradition. I mean, and there are certainly outrageous violations of our standards in the Crusades, in the, in the uh, Inquisitions, and in the, the wars that have gone on since then among Christians. Out, outrageous violations. But the Western Christian tradition was the just war theory which protects the women and the children and the lame and the blind. Where did that come from? It didn't come from the Middle East. It didn't come from the Jebusites. It came from Jesus Christ, who entered Jerusalem in a particular way. And we're to enter into war in a particular way. To me, the most beautiful thing of all the outrageous problems of Iraq and I'm not saying anything about being a Republican or Democrat, and I'm not trying to make either one of you happy or mad. We just we all know that big mistakes were made there, uh, military mistakes. But the most beautiful thing to me was early on when I saw Marines carrying the wounded from the other side and risking their lives to get the wounded from the other side into our clinics to treat them. Now, there's a picture, if you can say it, and if you're a pacifist, I'm sorry, but Christian warfare. And that comes right from this text. And if you're going to be a soldier, and if you're going to be a patriot in favor of war, a just war, you better be in favor of taking care of the lime and the blind. Uh, the lame and the blind. The lime and the blind. Now, there's a... <laughs> what time is it? This... I'm not supposed to be up this early. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind. 
the lame and the blind, you better be in favor of taking care of them because that's part of the warfare. It really is. So what we have now is Jesus establishing his kingdom in a particular way, and it's for all the nations. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Christians. It's for all the nations, and we'll see how he does it. Let's look at verses 1 through 11, and we'll probably, this is probably all we can, I'm not even sure we can do this, but A, he claims to be the king. Let's read the text and see how he claims to be the king. He is uh, taking unto himself title and position and office of the king of Jerusalem when he comes in. Let's look at it. As they approached Jerusalem, verse 1, and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He claims to be the king. Number one, Jesus plans his own coronation. Jesus planned it. He picked the moment. And he not only that, he picked the time and everything else. If you'll look at the parallels in verses 2 and 3 with verses 4 and 5, you'll see it. He says, go, verse 4, they went. Verse 2b, untie, and you look at 4b, they untied. Uh, Verse 3, if anyone says to you, and then in verse 5, they said to them. So it's this command and obedience. Three times you get those, those parallels in those first verses. He picked the moment. He designed it. He told them exactly what to do. Now, I suggest that you not try this method on your own. I mean, you can't just go up to somebody's car and get in and try to start and say, oh, the Lord told me. You know, don't, don't even think about it. But in this case, you see in a special moment, a positive moment of God's command, he told them what to do, and the people responded. They were untying a colt. What are you doing untying that colt? The Lord told me to. Okay. That's strange. Jesus was sovereignly governing the entire event. He has sovereignly designed his own majesty. It is through suffering and through servanthood, but it leads to exaltation. And he's designed it for you as well. And you'll find miracles happening in your life. And the greatest miracle of all will be at the last day when you find your own body reconstituted out of the grave and you're being crowned. And you'll say, what is this? And you'll find the whole universe in obedience to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to make you a king. The whole universe is in obedience because he's completely designed it. So when Jesus comes to make his, himself king, he perfectly designs it just as he does you. So he picks the moment and picks the way. Now, secondly, uh, the B here, he fulfills prophecy. And you find this in many, many ways. 
Uh, Zechariah 9, 9, for example, you can, if you want to turn back there, that would be uh, page 15, 18 and 19. We study Zechariah and here is the story of how the king, God himself, is going to come back and, and defend his people. He says in verse 8, uh, this is Zechariah 9, 8, page 15, 18. I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now, I am keeping watch. God says, the Babylonians took you into exile. I'm bringing you back and I'm watching out for you. And I'm going to defend you against your enemies. And then you get this text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Wow. (laughs) So when they see Jesus riding on a donkey, there's no question. He's coming in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. They all know it. And he's going to defend his people. So they're still building up in their minds this, this political, military political idea that here comes the Messiah riding on a colt to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9. And of course he is. And he is, going to, he is defending his people. And he is going to make himself king in a visible way. And there is going to be a physical constitution of the nation of the people of God. And there is going to be a final battle. And we are going to win. You just have to wait. Jesus is doing it in process in a way that they had not yet understood. It's going to come through suffering and servanthood. He's going to die and then he's going to rise and then he's going to come back. They don't have that in mind. But he's fulfilling prophecy. He fulfills every word of God. So what you have in Zechariah 9 are really three things that Jesus does. He enters the city. He comes on a messianic animal. And he incites great joy. Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem. And then you see them saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So those three key elements in Zechariah 9 are fulfilled by Jesus Christ perfectly. And then you'll notice, of course, he rules in meekness. And we know this because he is riding on on a donkey instead of a horse. When the triumphant military commander or king were to come into a city that was conquered, typically come on a horse. It's a war horse. But a king who wants to come in peace doesn't come on an instrument of war. He comes on an instrument of peace. The donkey. And that's the way Jesus came into Jerusalem, offering peace. Shalom to Jerusalem. He was offering peace to the city of peace. So he claims to be king. He plans his own coronation. That's the whole meaning of the triumphant entry. Then notice, secondly, Jesus elicits our praise. When he comes to us and reveals himself as king, the first instinct on our hearts is then to praise him, to acknowledge him as the king. That's the reason worship is so constituent. Uh, constituent, uh, is an important constituent to the Christian life. The first instinct is to praise Him, to acknowledge Him as King, to enthrone Him in your hearts, to enthrone Him in your praises, to let your tongue speak. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let us praise Him. Let all the nations praise Him. Get your tongue moving to praise Him. Don't stand there and worship with your hymnal in front of you or in the pew rack and you're sitting around counting bricks. Get your mouth open and worship Him. If you can't sing very well, well, sing a little lighter, but sing! Because the first instinct of the universe is to praise him. He said, if the children didn't praise me, the stones would cry out. And I love that little song by the kids. Ain't no rock going to take my place. And don't let some rock take your place. 
The first thing he comes to do is to elicit our praise. We, A, lay down our possessions. They spread their cloaks. Others spread branches. Like they had done when, in the days of the Maccabees. The last great uh, Maccabee, Simon, had come into Jerusalem in the same way and had spread palm branches before him. It was the same routine. So those who knew Jewish history just 150 years before, 160, uh, 180 years before, uh, were very aware of what was going on. They, they were enthroning another Messianic king who's going to save them in their minds, in the way they thought he should save them. And Jesus comes and they lay down their cloaks. Why? What is that to say? Here, take, take my coat. You know, you're the king. You own everything. Here, I'll just put this down in front of you to make your way to make it gentle and soft for you. So when Jesus comes, everything down. It's all his. You're his subject. He's the king. That's the only way you can respond to it. So you lay it down, and he owns everything. Secondly, we sing his praises. You get your mouth moving. Hosanna in the highest, they say. And what are they citing here? Well, uh, we'll close with this. They are citing ascension psalms. And those psalms are Psalm 113 through 118. And when you had a big festival in Jerusalem, especially the Passover, which is what this was, you start singing these psalms of ascent. Those are the psalms that you sing or the songs you sing while you're ascending to the hill of the Lord. It's kind of like, a, you know, in, in our church, and I'm sure in yours too, uh, we will have an opening hymn that's typically a praise hymn. Well, you're ascending to the hill of the Lord. It's a psalm of ascent. And Psalm 118 is what is being cited here. If you look at Psalm 118, this is page 933 in your Bible. And look at this one section, which is obviously a psalm that would have been sung when you're coming into Jerusalem, going up the hill of the Lord. They say, uh, verse 19, open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. Verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Then look at verse 25. Here's where Hosanna comes from. Oh, Lord, Hosanna. Oh, Lord, save us. Oh, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he, verse 26, who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So on. This is the language they were singing. But it's particularly ascribed to Jesus Christ. Hosanna, which means God save us. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus comes into the... Psalms of the people calling out for salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We're going to pick up there next week, but here's basically what's happening in that verse. Jesus comes as king. And he comes as Lord of the temple. You remember when we studied Malachi chapter 3, verse 1? The messenger of the covenant will come to the temple. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Not just fulfilling prophecy. He goes to where he cares the most. And next week we're going to see why did he care so much? Why did he go straight to the temple when he entered Jerusalem? What does that have to do with us today? It has a lot to do as we're going to see. Because what it does, it shows the key concern of Jesus Christ in his heart for your heart. His key concern for you is reflected when he goes into Jerusalem, goes straight to the temple and looks around. And we'll see what he does there and what he would do to us when he gets a hold of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, the blessed son of David, 
who comes to conquer this world, not through slaying the weak, but through raising them up, cheering them up and including us in your train. Lord Jesus Christ, you are a great king. Help us to go from here, Lord, as your kings, vassal kings who would rule in the same way. And Lord, help us to wait upon the enthronement of your suffering servants in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.